0: How many of you have ever been in a conflict with another Christian? Disagreed over something? Argued over something? Some of you just lied to me right now, kept your hand down. Big liars. If you live any amount of time, you're going to be in conflict with people. This, is, this just happens. It's going to happen in society. It's going to happen amongst Christians. We're going to find ourselves at odds with each other. But there's a biblical way to settle differences amongst yourself. There's a godly way and there's an ungodly way. And what Paul is encouraging this church in Corinth to do, he's saying, hey, 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 Settle your differences in a way that brings glory to God and restores and reconciles amongst yourself. Don't settle differences in a way that's going to deepen the divide ultimately and in the long run. So that's what we're talking about. Today we're going to look at three aspects of it though. So if you're note takers, it's a one, two, three, and it's super easy. First of all, let's put the text in context. We at This this is a Reformed church. And one of the things that we believe strongly is what we say, sola scriptura, by the scriptures alone. And what we believe strongly is this. The Bible explains itself. And if, if there's still questions, we go back and we look historically at language and at culture. We find out what did the text mean the day it was written and the day it was read? What did it mean then? At that point, we can figure out, okay, how do we apply that to our world today? That, by the way, is called hermeneutics. And so what we want to do is be good students of Scripture at this point. So let's put the text in context so we understood what it meant then and how that relates today. And secondly, we're looking for distinctly Christian settlements in our uh, disagreements that we may have with one another. And then thirdly today, um, we're going to take a look at being peacemakers and going and being genuinely, what's that word? reconciled. Let's all say this together. Reconciled. Reconciled means we put it back to where it was right. It's not saying uh, we'll just learn to live with each other. We're being reconciled. We're going to put it back to where it was right. If your car is in an accident and it goes to the body shop, it comes back, it should be reconciled. It should be just like it was before the conflict. And that way, it works perfectly. That's the same story of the Church of Jesus Christ. We need to reconcile our conflict. So first of all, let's put the text in context. In the day that this was written, it was true that they had courts, and they had legal uh, representatives, and you could get a lawyer, and you could go before judges, just like it is today. But just like our world today, I want to see if you can get your mind around what it might have been like in Corinth. So take your mind out of America, just the way it is in America, and let's go over here to just the way it is in Corinth. The courts were established and run by the wealthy and the people that the wealthy put in power. Crazy, huh? (laughs) I know this is hard for you to grasp, but their politics worked the same way. So legal, the people who were in charge of the legal matters We're the same kind of people and class of people who were in charge of politics, and they made the laws, and then it was enforced by the people who were kind of their minions. And in order to get to be a judge, you had to have a certain amount of wealth and and prosperity in the community. And as corrupt as that may sound, it's even worse in the Roman system. In order to be a juror in the Roman system... You had to be worth an equivalent today of about $5 million of annual income or net worth at any year time. That's, that, it was, it was $9,500 cesare or denari um, at the time in order to be a juror. So what people would do is they would say, I want to be a juror because if I'm a juror, I impact the outcome of things and everybody will want to make sure I'm on their jury and they'll pay me to be on their jury. And so it's a way to make money. So let's say you want to get up there and let's say Marietta Sherman's gonna be our juror. And Marietta's like, hmm, I find that I don't have this one point five million or whatever in my pocket today or my five million net worth. What I'll do is this. I'll go around and I will have I will look for a patron. And so she goes to people who have all that money laying around, you know, the burloos. And so she goes over. and She's like, hey, Eddie, hey Carol, check it out. I want to be uh, on this court. And Eddie's like, I think I got it on me. And he's like, Carol, you got the rest there? Here's $5 million. Will that get it done? And so she takes that money. And now here's what happens. She's a juror, but she's beholden to the burloos. And so now she is, in fact, a person in power. And as, as people come to court, they need her to have a vote for them. So they find themselves in court, and they, they give a little bit of cash over here to the Burlews. And the Burlews makes sure it makes its way back over to Marietta. And Marietta pays back the Burlews a little bit, and over time, they're paid back, and they've still got influence, and she's a juror. Doesn't that sound like a fair system? Isn't that great? That way, if you're poor or marginalized, you know if you go to the court what's going to happen. You're getting hosed. That's how the Roman system functioned, totally unlike the American political and justice system. It's hard to get our mind around it, isn't it? And so if you, if you see through the sarcasm, I want you to understand what Paul's saying. What are you doing, Christians? You're settling your, your, your conflicts among yourselves in the courts. Why would you do that? Not only is it not fair... it, It is slanted against the poor among you. It's slanted against actual justice. And because the Roman system hates the Christians, what we've got going on is a scenario where as soon as a Christian goes to court, you're guaranteed you're going to be mistreated. That's what's happening. This is a broken idea. So here's what Paul is saying to them. Wouldn't it be better that those of you who are going to judge the angels someday find some notable people among you who can settle your challenges among you? So in that corrupt system, a few few passages become important. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to, what's that word? Arbitrate. Between fellow believers, if you're arbitrating, you're not. You don't get any money out of it, okay? So now we look back at, at you know at, at this system we talked about before, and we would say, well, Marietta can't be negative. I mean, she can't be neutral, right? Because Marietta is clearly in this for the income. In this scenario we've painted for you, I'm not calling you a bad juror. It's Eddie. So so in this in this mixed up system, Carol, I mean, <clears throat> what's your name? Marietta is no way she's going to be neutral. She can't arbitrate. Because she has a stake in it. Neutrality means this. I don't make anything. I don't have a dog in this hunt. I want to see two people settle their difference. That's arbitrating. The neutral party who has no stake in either brings it together. Or the neutral party who has equal stake in both brings them together to seek a settlement. Paul is saying Christians, those of you who were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, who are going to spend eternity together. Would you please, when you have conflict, settle it amongst yourselves? Now, Paul is saying this, but it's not the first time we've heard this before. It seems that somebody else talked about this. Oh, back in the book of Matthew, what was that guy's name? He was talking about how we settle differences. How did that go? Who said that? Oh, Jesus gives us some instruction. Maybe we should look to what he said Jesus is saying, if your brother sins against you, that means sister too, by the way, it's a patriarchal society, which it's written, just, you know, whatever. So if your brother or sister sins against you, go to that brother or sister and tell them, rebuke them, let them know where they've wronged you. Settle this thing between you. If you can't come to an agreement, get a couple other Christian brothers and sisters and all of you sit down and try to work this out. Go to the scriptures to find out what right is, what the kingdom of heaven is, and you guys settle this amongst yourselves. If you still can't come to an agreement, then go to the elders or to the churches. It's translated here. Go to the leaders of that church. Let the elders and pastors sit down with you and work this out. Those who are the theologically, doctrinally trained, those who are the counselors, those are the wise among you. Let them come and help you find a solution. If at that point you can't find one, okay, fine. Then what you have to recognize is one of you isn't acting like a Christian at all. And now you can go ahead and proceed into the courts where nobody's gonna win. And so this is this is what Jesus is laying out. And Jesus' whole point is, if you can do it that way, excuse me, <clears throat> if you can do it that way, what you're gonna be able to do is gain a solid relationship with that brother or sister with whom you've had conflict. You're gonna strengthen it. And that's what we refer to as being reconciled. You're stronger, but you're put back the way it was supposed to be. That's the goal. Now, this is the text in its context. And what it's basically saying fundamentally is this. Christians must seek to resolve their differences by the counsel of the holy rather than go to civil or secular courts. Now, right now, here's what all of us do. We all have a bag of asterisks, Right think let it sink in just a second there you go some of you got it we've all got a whole bag of asterisks and we read the scripture and we go yeah but and we throw our asterisks in there yeah i hear what he's saying however and we throw our asterisks at the text but in my situation it's totally different you know so and we want to say i'm different it's my way it's because of because of but 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 yet yeah, yet yeah, yet yeah. oh wait a minute wait a minute Here's the the one asterisk I want everybody to take. You ready? It's the free asterisk that's provided here. This has to do with Christians conflicting with Christians. When Christians conflict with non-Christians, that mandate is not there. But when Christians conflict with Christians, the mandate is. Jesus told you how. Paul reinforces the fundamental message behind it, the declaration. But that's what Scripture has to say. And right now, some of you are going, I just don't like that. I feel like I should be able to go to court against another Christian if they've done me wrong. I'm sorry, you can't. You can, but you will be behaving like the culture around you rather than acting within the kingdom of heaven. That's tough, isn't it? Because here's what it means. (laughs) The way you judge other people is the way you're going to be judged. Right? And the way you treat other people is the way you should be treated. But if they don't treat you just with justice, you have to settle that amongst Christians with other Christian brothers and sisters in the context of the healthy church. And those are the steps that Jesus is laying out. And we hate that. Because sometimes we just want to go get what's mine in court and settle it and be done with it. When the harder work is to restore relationships and be reconciled. So, the fundamental teaching is a tough one. So, let's start to unpack exactly what that looks like when we talk about number two point, which is distinctly Christian settlements. Scripture says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Wait, what? Let's see that again. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Let's see this last sentence together. So glorify God with your body. Let's all do it this time. Ready? So glorify God with your body. Somebody say glorify. glorify. Okay. What's that mean? What does it mean to glorify? I don't get it. I hear this word in scripture, but so often it, it's like those other Christian words. We just go, hmm, I say it. I'm not quite sure what it means. Is it a song? Uh, is that what? it? But wait, here's what glorify means. Glorify is to take all of the honor all the respect and all the attention, and to turn it to. So if we glorify God with our body, which means the sum of all that we do and behave, if we're glorifying God, we're turning the attention to Him rather than to ourselves. And see, this becomes the core of where our challenge is. Most of us kind of have this sense that we really want to glorify ourselves when it comes to conflict. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. In the midst of a conflict, you kind of figure you belong on the throne right now. You'll determine what's right because we're all the hero in our own story, right? We're all perfectly suited to be czar of the universe. I got some plans if I ever am. But what would you do if you were the one who gets to make all the rules? You kind of figure, well, I'd make it right, you know, because I would do what's right because I'm a pretty good neutral judge. and, And by the way, I'm right all the time anyway. And so we seek to glorify ourselves by getting what's owed me Getting what's right by me, doing what's right by me, getting my way, making sure that I'm at the center of the, of the choices and the decisions and the reasons and the rations that we, that we live by. That's putting me on the throne. But if we're glorifying God, we're saying in the midst of this situation, rather than what's best for me, what's best for God? What would draw everybody's attention to God? What would make people go, that's how Christians behave. That's a Christian behavior. That's a Christian action. You see, in that scenario, it isn't about you anymore. And it may mean that what you have to say is, I give up my rights in order to draw glory to God and not distract the picture of Jesus Christ by me fighting for my rights or what's mine. That is really hard to hear for a Corinthian. Maybe it's hard to hear for you. But most of you, I'm going to guess, haven't had the same story as the Corinthians. A Corinthian story might look like this You're poor, okay? But because you're poor, somebody's come and taken one of your daughters and turned her into a prostitute, and they're getting paid for it. And then a few years later, when she's no good to them, they throw her back in your house and say, Here, you take care of it. And you go, I forgive. I move past that. They're not Christians. They hate Jesus, and rather than me fighting for my rights against this person, which I will lose anyway, I'm going to choose to forgive and do what we can to heal and to restore and to move on. I don't think that's any of your story so far, right? I don't think most of you have had your sons kidnapped and forced to fight for the Roman Legion or carry around the packs and and serve the Roman Legion or dig latrines and clean out pits for the Romans. I don't think that's any of your story. Maybe it is, but I doubt it somehow, I don't think many of you have been kidnapped and turned into slaves where you have to serve some master with all of your rights taken away, being brutalized and abused for years and years on end, and then one day just turned over for dead. Uh, I, I don't think that's many of your stories, but that was the story for many of the Corinthians. So the question I'm asking is, if they could look for Christian settlement amidst, injustice. Do you think we might be able to? Because see, here's some other stories that were happening in Corinth. Within the Christian community, there were people who claimed the name of Jesus who were mistreating other people who claimed the name of Jesus. There were people who said they're Christians who were stealing from, abusing, misrepresenting. They were swindling. They were the people who were entering into false contracts With other Christians. They were cheating other Christians. There there was sexual sin and and, and things that were going on within this community where people who claimed to be Christians were the ones perpetrating this kind of stuff. And Paul is saying, You must settle this amongst yourselves. And a lot of those Christians were going, No way. I've got my rights. I'm fighting for what's mine. I'm not standing by for this. I'm taking up the sword or I'm going to court. Paul's saying, no, you're not. You're going to settle this amongst yourselves. You're going to have other Christian brothers and sisters sit down with you and find a way through this. That is a really hard position to take. And that's what Paul's asking the Corinthians. So what do Christian settlements look like? Well, it's a great question. So let's think about this. Forgive that idiot. That's crazy. And that's how most of us think. Yet Jesus is saying this in the very prayer he taught us to pray. You know it. You ready? I even put it up here in King of James. That's the way most of us memorized it. And this is the manner you should pray. Our Father, which art in he- I better not be the only one. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. For this it is in heaven. Thank you, Catholics. Stop. Our debts. Debts. It also is translated trespasses forgive us our debts forgive us our trespasses okay let's keep going as we forgive our debtors keep going and not temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever amen don't stop for if you forgive men their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Hmm. It seems that Jesus' thought didn't end with the amen after all, did it? It seems that as Jesus is teaching how we pray, this issue of debts and trespasses and forgiving has more context. And the context is this. You forgive the trespasses of one another the same way your Father in heaven has forgiven your trespasses. Now, do you remember early on in here when I was asking if any of you were flawless and sinless and you've never done anything wrong, go ahead and raise your hand. And and of course you didn't because you realize we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Do you expect God to forgive you when you ask for forgiveness, though? Because as it states in Scripture... If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Illustrated, Jesus says, He separates sin from you as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. When you speak of sin that you committed five years ago and ask God to forgive, and you've moved moved past that, and you start bringing it up again, God says, I don't know what you're talking about. You've been forgiven of that. It's gone. It's washed away. It's completely annulled. You don't have to go back to that. You were struggling with this sin. You've come past it. You've been forgiven. Leave it in the past. Don't keep going back to it. It's then, not now. It's not who you are. It's what you were. But you've been transformed by the renewing of your mind. That was then. This is today. And if we expect that from God, shouldn't we expect that from one another? Well, that sounds crazy. That person did me wrong. And so here's Peter. (laughs) He's coming up in front of Jesus like, well, how many times do I have to forgive? And Jesus says, 70 times 7, and 7 more in case you lost count. And Pete's like, but Jesus. The Romans have been, he's like, and you forgive them, 70 times 7. Okay, but what about the Jewish Pharisees and all, you get mad at them too there, and you remember you got the whip, and Jesus is like, you forgive, 70 times 7, you're not me. But when we ask for forgiveness, it has to be gone. So if Jesus is showing you that's how to do it, What's it mean amongst Christian brothers and sisters when one sins sins against the other and then comes back and asks for forgiveness? What's the responsibility now? It's to forgive and not to bring it up again. It's over, it's done. And as often as they do it, you forgive. Does it mean you need to change some behaviors and maybe put some fences in place to prevent that behavior? Maybe there need to be accountability partners or other people that help you walk through these situations when they occur. Of course. Maybe there needs to be a biblical counselor in your life who's helping you put a better system in the way that you think of the world and how you conduct yourself within the context of Scripture. That may very well be. But you forgive. And that's how you move on. See, that's what Christian settlement looks like. So that, so that, oh, go go slide. Oops. So that this happens in Galatians six two, you bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The word burden here means a weight of personal or eternal significance, and we refer to a character flaw, a struggle, a moral requirement. So if if you bear one another's burdens, first we're forgiving. And then we're understanding that this person struggles with that sin. So if I've got a a Christian friend who struggles with um, uh, shoplifting, right? So I won't call anybody out and make my example right now. right? So let's just say there's this person who struggles with shoplifting, and they're my Christian brother or sister. And I become aware of it. Okay. Hey friend. So how about no, we're not going to do that anymore because that's stealing and that that cannot be how we conduct ourselves. I'd really like you to return those things and make it right. And then let me be your shopping partner for a while. Okay. Until we can learn to move past this behavior. And if you do it again, I'm going to continue to call you out. And now I'm helping this person because I love them walk through life to not repeat that anymore, but let's make it a little more personal. Maybe it's somebody who has a biting tongue somebody who's constantly critical or snarky, a, a person who brings up grudges, a person who's always got some nasty thing to say, and you go, hey, because I love you, let me walk alongside with you and help you not do this anymore. Addict friend, non-forgiving friend, grudge-holding friend, financially irresponsible friend, let me walk alongside of you as a Christian and let's get through this together. You see, that's carrying one another's burdens. And part of this, this whole idea of how Christian settle conflicts is that we settle it and we bear one another's burdens now making sure or attempting to make sure these things don't happen again. But if they do, we continue to forgive and we continue to come alongside and walk people through it. But that big asterisk I keep talking about, I've brought it out two, three times now. What is that big asterisk? It's that this is talking Christian to Christian Okay, Christian to Christian conflict. When your conflict is with a non-Christian, that mandate no longer exists. What was the mandate? The mandate was this. Christians must seek to resolve their differences by the counsel of the holy. It doesn't have a mandate on you when it's somebody outside the Christian family conducting themselves in a way that's godless. Of course you can go to the courts with that. Of course you may have to, but you've got to go back to that bigger question of who are you putting on the throne and to whom are you bringing glory? Jesus set an example that's a struggle. It's a struggle for many of us to accept. And, and it's articulated this way. These are the words of, of uh, D.A. Carson. He says, a central theme of the Christian faith is Christ's willingness to be wrongfully sentenced and killed on the cross. Christians, therefore, should realize that it is more Christ-like to accept being wronged than to seek retaliation. So what does it say in the midst of that verse in in Corinthians, what Paul is saying to them? It says, as it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? How long are you going to live, you think, as a person? How, How long do you suspect you'll live? 80, 90, 100 years? right? It's not bad, right? 100 years would be pretty spectacular. Century. yay. Some people will make it to 100. I, I doubt I'll see 70, uh, but some people will, will make it to 100. Good on you. But, but here's a question. How many of you in this room, just by show of hands, figure you're going to live for about 3,007 years? Anybody? Hands up. Anybody? 3,007, not 3,008. That's crazy, right? But how many of you would make it 3,000? No? Can I give you a little revelation here? Those of you who are in Jesus Christ, though you die, you're going to live forever. With Christ Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. What you were created for is to be on an earth that was perfectly suited for you. And that new heaven, new earth, we understand that God creates is for Christians to reside in forever without sin and without death and without pain and without disappointment. That's where you're going to live forever. Those 90 to a hundred years we were talking about a little, a few minutes ago, those years, that's just kind of like the training wheels for real life. This is temporary. How many of you would just love to keep the body you've got right now for a couple of thousand years? My hand is not up. I mean, some of you are like maybe 15. You're like, yeah, this works. But here's the thing. You're not going to live forever in this body. Okay. A perfected new body and a new heaven, new earth. That's your future. And the people you're going to spend that time with are the people that you're spending time with today. Brothers and sisters in Christ. What matters in a million years it's incomprehensible isn't it a million years I can't even think what a million years look I can't even think what a million dollars look like Much like a million years but think about this let's just say that that 3,007 which was a pretty reasonable figure imagine 3,007 years in the future how much does the conflict you're in right now matter then will it matter probably not You'd probably have moved on. But here's the beauty of it. When you're Christians, you settle it now as if you're in that 3,007 years from now. You settle with that end in mind because how we deal with this says everything about how we're going to be spending the kingdom of heaven with one another. You can't behave like the kingdom of heaven now unless you understand what it's going to be like then. And that's vice versa. You still tracking with me? I know that starts to get kind of nebulous and people go, I can't think that far into the future. I get it. But Paul did something beautiful for us. And he talked to you about that issue of the glory of God. And that's why you glorify God with your body. Distinctive Christian settlements bring glory to God. It's not about me. It's about bringing glory to God. And that may mean sometimes I let go of my rights in order that the glory be to God and not me sitting on that throne. Let me do that one more time. Some of you zoned. Distinctively, Christian settlements are all about bringing glory to God, not necessarily about me and my my rights and bringing glory to myself, but putting the attention and the glory to God. That is distinctly Christian, and I can promise you, people who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they cannot possibly do that. Even those who attend church on a regular basis who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they can't possibly get to that point of saying, I'm going to let this go because it brings glory to God rather than to me. That is difficult, grown-up, genuinely mature, kingdom-of-heaven Christian behavior. And that's what a distinctively Christian settlement looks like. So how do you do those? Our third point today has to do with this matter of being peacemakers, going and being reconciled one to the other. So if we're going to be uh, settling and reconciling, um, we we need kind of a pattern. We need to understand what this this settling and reconciling and having peace among ourselves looks like. And so go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come before the Lord. As Jesus was talking to um, his disciples, he was talking with them about their giving, Um, giving uh, time, talent, and treasures, how we talk about that in the church today. And and, uh, this really is the heart of what Jesus is talking about then at this point. If you are offering your gift at the altar and then you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Jesus is saying, don't find yourself into this prison of resentment and hatred and division. If you have conflict, settle it. And before you come to God, To offer God your time, your talent, or your treasures, would you settle your differences with one another so there's harmony in the body? Otherwise, it's tainted. Otherwise, it's great that you're here serving, but you've got this issue about your life that everybody sees in you, and it's conflict. Settle those things first before you come before God. This was Jesus' instruction, and it exists today. If you've been at Sturgeon Bay Community Church for a while, you're familiar with the book, The Peacemaker, by Ken Sandy. Uh, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy is a a guide, the best that has ever been penned, by the way, for Christian conflict resolution. We've done this series probably a half dozen times over the last 10 years. We've done it as a sermon series at least twice. And gosh, Jim, I think you and I did this as a life group back in 2010, 2009. Um, So we're going going back a while. This has been around here for a while. Uh, This is part of a Peacemakers International. It's It's a whole organization designed to help Christians settle conflict. And at its core, there are four points that make it unique. And this is kind of where we're stopping today. So I'd say one, two, three, four points. Let's list these. This is what Christians do to be reconciled in conflict. Will this work with people in the secular world? Often, yes, but you have to be the one driving the process. They're not going to do it. But if you approach uh, conflict with these ways to be reconciling, not just settling, this is how it looks. First of all, glorify God. That's your first step. The first question is this. How can I bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that I deal with the way that I am in conflict right now? Maybe you've been wronged right? Maybe you're the victim here, or maybe you're the jerk that needs to to make it right, okay? How can I, in the midst of this, glorify God in this conflict? That's the chief question. It has to be first. It's it's not, how do I get away with it? It's not, how do I, you know, make them be happy? How do I glorify God in this moment? Sometimes the question to that is, you let it go. Sometimes you just have to say, this is not worth a fight, I just need to release this and let it go. It's not an issue. It's not a hill worth dying on, we like to say in the Baptist world. This is just something you let go. Okay, Maybe you say it in the other worlds too. I don't know. I'm just Baptist. That's where I come from. So if we're going to glorify God, we just have to be able to say that's the ultimate end and everything else becomes second. It's not about me glorifying me. It's about glorifying God in this situation. The second step then goes right along with it. It's called get the log out of your own eye remember, remember how I asked who's sinless in the room, remember that, remember that. And nobody wanted to raise their hand? Of course not. Let me paint you a brilliant picture that Jesus demonstrated for us. Do you remember the story of the woman who was caught in adultery and those Pharisees brought her before Jesus for her to be stoned? Do you remember that? Remember that from scripture? See, the ancient Jewish law had this thing. If you're caught in adultery, they would stone somebody to death. That's a way of saying we're not going to tolerate that behavior. By the way, if we still had that policy, there'd be a whole lot less adultery going on. Hmm. Not advocating. But I'm saying that in this particular scenario, here's Jesus teaching in the temple courts. And in comes this loud crowd, and they're dragging this poor woman who got caught in an affair and they want to stone her to death. They're going to enforce the law. And I'm always wondering, where's the guy? <laughs> How'd he skate? Right? <laughs> this seems unfair. Maybe he's a politician. So anyway, so they come So here's the here's the woman, she's caught in adultery, and they're like, We want to stone her, Jesus. What should we do? Enforce the law. The law says this. And so Jesus says, all right, let's do this. Let's follow the law. And Jesus takes his finger and he draws the line out there. It's a separation line in the dirt. By the way, you know, you know about this, Right. He wasn't writing the sins of the Pharisees in the dirt. Stop that. What he's doing is he's taking his line, his finger, and he's drawing this line because there was a distance that was prescribed in Leviticus and Deuteronomy for how far you stood away from the person who was being stoned. And this line of separation separated you uh, as illustrative of how you are sinless and they are sinful, and that's what separates you. And so you would draw the line, and people would stand at that line, but no closer, and they would throw the stones from there. So what Jesus was doing when he drew the line is he's saying, okay, I'm going to take control of the situation. I'm going to uphold the law as the juror here. I'm going to draw the line in the sand. And they were all excited because they figured they got Jesus now. He's going to incite a killing. And Jesus stands up and he goes, all right, whoever is sinless, you get to throw the first stone. And they're all like, oh, because here's what every one of them recognizes. But if I throw the first stone, it's me saying I've never sinned, which means it's blasphemy, which means you're next. Okay, that's cool. Jesus is sharp, isn't he? And so this is what Jesus draws the line in the sand. They're like, oh, got him. Oh, he got us again. And so get the log out of your own eye. This is Jesus' message. You're not sinless. So before you start throwing stones, even throwing sand or shade at each other, what you need to do is realize you have sin too. Get that sin confessed before you start to attack other people for their sin. This is your amen kind of moment. You get it? If you're not sinless, you have some confessing to do, some business to do with God before you're ready to really be reconciled with other people. And a lot of times it looks like this. Um, I, I have to confess this. I've been guilty in this conflict we have. I need to confess. I feel like I contributed to it in this way. I've been wrong this way. I need to confess and ask you to forgive me of that before you're ever ready to let them know what their sin is and call them into account. Now, that's kind of dynamic, isn't it? See, that's getting the log out. But then the third one is this issue that we always struggle with. And this is gently restore one another. This isn't attack. This is restore. Let's make the relationship right. Let's restore that center to a place of prominence and service and and good standing in the Christian relationship, in the Christian family. But isn't this opposite of what we see churches do all the time? Somebody gets caught in sin, and what's the church do? Oh, kick them while they're down. Oh, you did that. They're terrible. I have nothing to do with them. Never liked them in the first place. And so we want to turn our back and attack our wounded, whereas the Christian response should be, oh, my goodness. But they're for the grace of God. I would be in that situation. If you got found out for your deepest, darkest sin, how would you want people to deal with you? Ooh. See, preacher gone to meddling now, right? I liked it when it was about other people. I don't like it when it's about me how would you want to be restored? You see, when people screw up in the church, here's what we got to do. I love you. I'm not perfect, but here's where you've messed up. Let's make this right so that you can go back to using your time, your talent, and your treasures in this body in a way that makes a difference. You've been in leadership and you've messed up. You got to step back a little bit. Let's settle this before you can step back into leadership. Uh huh? You see, that's restoring people. Did you come from a church where restoration was really practiced? Or are we afraid to confess our sins because we're afraid people are going to do to us like we saw done in the past? You screwed up and they turned around and attacked our wounded. No, we restore people because that's what gets us to level four, which is go and be reconciled. And what did reconciliation mean? What was reconciled about? Put back right. That's what we're aiming for as Christian brothers and sisters, reconciled relationships. The thing you want from God is the thing we need to be offering to one another.